Hello, welcome to Does the Shoe Fit? I'm Taylor, and this is a podcast where therapists at LMB talk about different popular culture ideas or themes and ask, does that fit reality? And so today we're talking about the show Intervention, and we have Kirsten here to kind of lead the way. This is her, this is her niche, her thing, yeah, and so I'm super excited to listen, learn, and do this podcast with you. So thank you. Um, so my background is I'm a licensed clinical mental health counseling associate. I'm also a licensed cl- uh, clinical addiction specialist here at LME Counseling, and I'm also a certified clinical supervisor intern. Yep. Um, so I work a lot with addictions, a lot in substance use, process addictions, behavioral addictions. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about intervention. I have been watching this show since I was a teenager. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's been a long time. Because hmm. um, I was trying to prep for the podcast and think about, like, you know, why have I watched this show for so long? There's 21 seasons on a and It's a very popular show that pulls in, you know, millions of views per episode. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking, like, why am I so drawn to this show, even as a teenager? And I think that, for me... I was drawn to it because I had dealt with a family member who struggled with the disease of addiction. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was a way, a kind of understanding, like, why? Why does this all happen? Right. Um, And, you know, this is pre-my graduate school training, (laughs) pre-education. And so I had very, very limited knowledge of what addiction actually was. And I feel like I learned a lot through the show. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, so I just watched the episode. I didn't even know the show existed until mm-hmm. you brought it up to me. And I watched two episodes, and I was texting Kirsten the whole time being like, they can show this? like, Or what does this mean? What does this mean? And, like, uh, it was eye-opening. Like, if you – yeah, it's there's only one season on Netflix, so there's eight episodes. Um, but yeah. I watched two of those episodes, and it was super eye-opening, just – I didn't even realize kind of the stuff that what it looks like in real life because you see it on TV shows and you know some of it may portray it correctly and some of it may not but this was like real life um situations and real people and some of it like made me cry like it was it's intense you really see the the depths of addiction through this show for sure and so I'll go I had Taylor watch it beforehand so that she could have an idea of the premise of the show Mm -hmm. and it follows the same concept throughout the whole 21 seasons Mm -hmm. that they have like this show has been on the air for 17 years and they've had over 300 people do the show Mm -hmm. I looked at some statistics and I saw that like 80% of the people that go on the show go to treatment and that are successful oh so it actually helps it does um there's cons to the show which I'll get to like there's pros and cons to everything Mm -hmm. um But the whole premise is that it shows, it's kind of like a documentary style, Mm -hmm. and it takes um, someone's story and shows, like, what is active addiction like for this person? And so they have a lot of different types of substances that they focus on, like um, alcohol abuse, cocaine abuse, methamphetamines, heroin addiction. And something up that's popping up recently has been more of fentanyl. Oh, wow. And so we know that fentanyl is, like, the most powerful opiate out right. there. It is 80 times stronger than morphine, but we're seeing it more and more. 
pop up because overdoses are rising right now yeah. due to fentanyl use. Yeah. So it's interesting to see in the the longevity of intervention of the earlier seasons don't really have a lot of fentanyl. Mm-hmm. And I think I sent this statistic to Taylor last night, but in 2010, only about 14% of substance use disorders were using fentanyl right. versus 2017, seven years later, it's at 53%. That's a huge increase. And that's five years ago from today. Yeah. That's insane. I think one of the episodes showed the overdose that happened. Was that with fentanyl? That was. Right. And so, I mean, the episode showed it. It was insane. Um, And it was just, like, so eye-opening to see, like, what that disease looks like. Because, you know, it's so scary for the family members to find people like that. And and I just can't. That's just the trauma that is created around it and what like before it during after there's just so much to it Mm -hmm. it's a very complex subject yes um and the show takes you through like what their life is like in active addiction you know how they're getting their their substances whether it's alcohol or if it's drugs um i'm gonna use substances interchangeably because it's really alcohol drugs or it's a little of both um one of the shows that you watched was like a poly substance use Mm -hmm. Um, and that is when there is someone who is not addicted to just one. Usually what we see is, you know, there's a favorite, there is a drug of choice. Um, and so for someone who has like a poly substance use disorder, their drug of choice is multiple, you know, they will interchangeably choose. But, um, what I see in my work is that people gravitate towards one, um, and it's different for everyone. Right. Um, and what the show does takes them through the active addiction. It shows what their background is like. What was their childhood like mm-hmm. that brought them up to this point? Yep. And then um, the family goes through something called a pre-intervention. Um, and so that's where they talk with a certified interventionist. And they talk about, okay, setting boundaries. We're going to write this letter How do we set boundaries? What do we need to do? How do we get this person to say yes to going to treatment? Because at the intervention, what will happen is the family will all come together. They will read a letter to the letter to their loved one Mm -hmm. and the, the interventionist will give them an ultimatum. You either go to treatment or your family's going to enact these boundaries. And some of these boundaries are like, they're harsh of, I'm not going to allow you to live in my home. Right. You know, essentially you're going to be homeless if you say no to treatment. And we'll talk about boundaries and enabling, you know, in a little bit. Um, But that's what happens in the intervention. And so if they say no, then we have to enact the boundaries. But if they say yes, then they go off to treatment for 90 days. Um, You know, your first three months in recovery are your most crucial. So... Uh, that's the time that you're most vulnerable because you're also going through a withdrawal process in the beginning. Right. Um, and you're really starting to learn how to cope with all of these feelings that we've just like pushed down and suppressed for so long. Right. Um, so they go off to treatment and then the show gives like a little brief, like, hey, this person completed or they left right. treatment. Right. Something like that. Yep. I will say with the show, too, is I feel like I have so many questions about where they are now. And you don't get yeah. all of those questions answered. So I feel very invested in these people's lives now. And I may not know exactly what's going on with them. Um, but it was really interesting to see. And I actually didn't know that the first three months are crucial. But it makes sense because, you know, like, A, I feel like people don't know how to quit right? Like you need to be supported. Um, you, there's like alcohol addiction. You can't just cut 
cold turkey like that's Mm -hmm. dangerous right you have to have someone there that's guiding you and supporting you and so um i think the show's really cool because i think do they and i don't i didn't know this do they offer the intervention like do they pay for it the the show pays for their treatment yeah so that's really cool um and that's a huge i mean if you are a long time watcher of the show then you can understand why the family pushes so hard for this intervention as like this is the last opportunity right um, because treatment is very, very expensive. Yeah. You know, it's often not covered by insurance. Um, and if it is, it's, it's not a lot mm-hmm. or, you know, some really good facilities are out of network. And so, you know, treatment could run you the, the price of a car, Ugh. you know, $30,000 upwards, higher amounts than that, um, to be there for, for three months. Yeah. Yikes. Uh, yeah. So it's a, it's a lot of money. And so for some people, like, the intervention, the, the show, paying for it, it's oh like, this is, a, this is a wonderful opportunity That's for huge. you to go get help. Right. So there's a big push to them for them to get help. Right. I mean, it made sense. Like, they didn't explicitly say it in the show necessarily, mm-hmm. but the way they were, like, portraying it, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, the show's definitely, like, paying for this treatment. So I'm like, every time I'm screaming at this, I'm like, take it, take it. And it's like, uh, the two I saw, one did and one didn't. Right. Um, one didn't want the treatment. It's just so heartbreaking to watch, like someone not accept that kind of help and mm-hmm. the family members are just so upset about it too and it's mm-hmm. it's a tough road I mean like when they're reading those letters like I said it it gets it's pretty powerful and it's pretty sad to watch because it's real people like in movies and like like shameless and stuff like I feel like I can detach from that because it's it's fake it's you know it's not real but like this show it's real like yeah. these are real people's lives and and it means i feel like there's so much more power mm-hmm. to come from that yeah and what you notice in the show too of what you're talking about of like feeling for the families is addiction is a ripple effect mm-hmm. you know and i think that the misconception is that the user doesn't care about the family um and that they're maybe intentionally hurting their family, but it's really not the case mm-hmm. because at a certain point in someone's active addiction, it's not really a choice for them anymore. And so their addiction ripples through the family and the family starts getting resentful of the person who's in active addiction and um, they can start enabling behaviors and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So it really affects the entire system. Mm-hmm. Um to the point where, you know, caregivers, like parents, can be addicted to their child's addiction, mm, you know? Like, it gives them a sense of, like, responsibility to take care of them. Yeah, because like it's control. Yep. You know? Interesting. One of the things that I tell clients that have family members of addiction is the three C's. You can't cure it, you didn't cause it, and you can't control it. Mm, okay. And... I, I really play on that with my family members because there is this false sense of control that, well, if I make sure that there's no liquor in the home or I make sure that they, I drive them everywhere, you know, I can control their use. Right. And that's really not the case because we can't control other people. Right. What do you do with someone who has a lot of like blame as a parent for like, let's say the cause? Cause I feel like mm-hmm. in some of these, like the show really brought out like a lot of family stuff, past experiences did lead this person down that road. Now necessarily like, it's not like the parent put a gun to their head and said like, take this drug. But right. like some of that, you know, 
I feel like as a parent, like I would blame myself or mm-hmm. if that kind of ended up that way. So what do you do about that? That's an interesting one because like, depending on what family stuff happens, like you didn't make the choice for them. Um, a lot of what you see in a lot of stories and in intervention is a lot of drug use or alcohol use starts as a teenager, Yes, which you know, teenagers developmentally want to explore, they want more freedom, they start trying to think like an adult and trying to have autonomy over themselves. And so they just engage in more risky behaviors. Their prefrontal cortex, which holds all of our judgment, uh, reason is not fully developed yet. And so um, we see a lot of substance use in teenagers that way, which parents can't necessarily always control for that. And, you know, that can spiral out of control very quickly. Um, But with the blaming aspect, I always ask, like, well, did you know at the time that this was happening that this would subsequently happen? Right. And usually that answer is no. Right. And so how can we take on that guilt? Like, you know, parents' guilt is real and it Mm -hmm. is rough. But... Um, we can't always take on that blame and weigh ourselves down with it because where were we at at the time? Did we have the tools, the capacity to know what was happening? Right. But also, like, what are we going to do about it right now? Because we're blaming ourselves for things that have happened in the past, but what can I do for myself right now? Right. You know, a big thing about addiction is, yes, the individual needs treatment. Mm-hmm. But the family needs treatment mm-hmm. too, yep. because you know they're engaged in enabling behaviors, codependency. You know they could be addicted to their child's addiction or their family member's addiction, and so they need recovery as well. Their recovery right. looks different; it's mm-hmm. not substance use based. Right. But you know that I would talk to someone and encourage them to seek out their own therapy services to deal with all of those things because right. blaming yourself is a very common thing mm-hmm. for family members. Absolutely. Right. Um, but once you have someone on the other side saying like, well, did you know that this would happen? Like, you know, sometimes we can't control those things. Right. And I think it's a good perspective change too, because when you're in it, it's so hard to do. It's all consuming. Right. Right. You're in the middle of the storm. There's no way to like look outside the storm and be like, well, did I really predict this happening? I'm not a weather person. Right. And it's Mm -hmm. like, it's hard to do that when you are in the middle of it. So that makes a lot of sense. And I think education plays a huge role mm-hmm. in this uh, of what addiction actually is. So there are pretty much like three tenets of addiction from what we know through research. One of those is genetics. And so like why does someone engage in substance abuse or why is someone addicted to drugs or alcohol? We look at these three different areas of someone's life. We look at genetics was their direct parent uh, a, a user or abuser or an addict, whatever you want to call it? Right. Um, because if the direct parent is an addict, then we have a predisposition for it. So we have a 50% chance of developing addiction ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so genetics plays a huge role. Wow, 50%, that's huge. It's very huge. And then we also look at psychological concerns. Okay. And so that means like, Did they have an anxiety disorder growing up? Um, Do they have bipolar uh, disorder? Do they have depression and they're using to to mask the depression or they're using for the anxiety or using to stabilize their moods because they have bipolar disorder? Um, So we look at psychological issues and 
the statistics around co-occurring disorders and substance use disorders is a lot. You know, yeah. usually they go very hand in hand and they're marrying together. Um, and so we look at the psychological issues, but then we look at environment. Okay. So how was this person raised? So, you know, genetics is more of that nature. Yep. And then environment is more of the nurturing yep. aspect of it. And so what you see consistently, or maybe not, I don't want to overgeneralize the entire show because some people do have really great childhoods uh-huh. and still kind of fall to the depths of addiction. Right. Um, but what you see as a consistent theme is childhood trauma yep. in a lot of these stories. Um so Taylor and I are both familiar with the Adverse Childhood Experiences yep. survey. It's called the ACEs. Mm-hmm. And it's basically this 10-question survey that if you mark yes, it increases your... You get a point or something. Yeah. yeah. And so what it looks at is before you were the age of 18, have you gone through these experiences? And if yes, mm-hmm. that is a marker of trauma yep. for someone. And one of those on there is, like, have your parents been divorced? Yeah, so that was actually very interesting to me, too, because, like, as a family therapist or, like, couples therapist, sometimes divorce is a better option. Mm-hmm. Um, but that technically is a marker for trauma because for the kids, like, even if couples are, like, in this volatile relationship and it's really hard on the kids, even someone like that, like, a couple like that divorcing is still hard on the kids. So it's, like, you feel yeah. like you're caught in this like and for the one episode that I watched that was the case they weren't in a happy marriage it wasn't good necessarily right being um for her growing up Mm -hmm. and then her parents got divorced and it still was bad um and so it was like is there is there a positive answer here like what what do you do so I remember when I first learned about the aces that was a very interesting thing for me to be like oh wow I wouldn't think of that but it totally makes sense right and some of the other questions on there are yeah, about abuse, you know, mm-hmm. has someone ever hit you, you know, has someone ever yelled at you, called you names, stuff like that. Um, also sexual abuse is on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and is your parent, uh, was your parent incarcerated? Mm-hmm. Was your parent um, using illicit drugs? Did your parent have a mental health condition? And so when you watch the stories of these people on intervention, you see a lot of them checking these boxes on yep. the ACEs. Yep. And so, like, now that I watch it as a therapist, it, it, it's a very different perspective. For sure. Where I'm marking check boxes of, like, <laughs> okay, that happened to them. This happened to them. This happened to them. Like, how could, how could they not fall into this? Like, right. you know, they didn't have the tools to be able to cope with the things that were happening to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not their parents' fault. Because if their parents didn't know how to deal with these things and they dealt with them as children, yep. like the generational trauma, generational trauma, yep, like we see that repeat itself, repeat patterns, and a lot of these things are very unconscious. Generational trauma is very unconscious. Yep. It just happens because mm-hmm. trauma, you know, our our bodies hold all of our traumas. Mm-hmm. Like the body keeps the score, yep. and so we can fall into chaotic patterns without even realizing it because our body may be used to those chaotic patterns. And it's like what you saw growing up. Like right, if you, that was normalized. Right, if that was normalized or was modeled for you, no matter what, like, you try to not do that yourself, but it's almost mm-hmm. instinctual sometimes. And you hear a lot of people, like, who become parents are like, oh my gosh, I sound like my mother or I sound like my dad. And it's like, 
Yeah, because that was what was modeled for you. So you're now saying the same things or you're instinctually thinking the same things or feeling the same way. And um, so when you think about in terms of generational trauma, that makes sense. If you were raised like that or saw that growing up, it's probably going to be your first reaction too. Mm -hmm. And so there is a a doctor that I really respect, Dr. Gabor Mate. He's written numerous books like um, one of the books that I read in the realm of Hen- Hungry Ghosts. Okay. It's a very, very, very good book. Um, but I respect his work, and I was watching a TED Talk by him, and he said that addiction is the result of human suffering. Oh, yeah. And I thought that that made so much sense to mm-hmm. me. Um, because when we think about suffering um, and the three markers of addiction that we just talked about of genetics, okay, their parent was an alcoholic, what did that do to the kid? Right. Um, psychological issues, but, you know, anxiety, depression can feel like suffering. Oh, for some, sure. You know, yeah. depending on its severity. Mm-hmm. And also your environment. If you yeah. grew up in a very chaotic environment, it, it feels like suffering. Mm-hmm. And so when he said that addiction is the result of human suffering, I thought, wow, that's a very humanizing statement. Yes. Because we like to think of addiction as this moral choice. Right. You know, this moral debate of, well, you're choosing to do this. And it's not always that easy to say. Like, mm-hmm. yes, everybody has a choice in their lives to go do drugs or drink alcohol. And maybe more towards the beginning. Yeah. And they're probably choosing these things as teenagers, right? by the way. Which, and, and when you're a teenager, your prefrontal cortex is not developed. Right. Like, you are not making choices that you would maybe make as like as an adult as an adult like right. I think back to when I was a teenager and I'm like why would I do that or why would I say that or I feel bad for all those things and it's like if I were to go back now I would never have done like that. did you have the capacity to know that those things were bad no no but like so like I don't sit here and like guilt trip myself but like and yeah. I recognize that but it's just so crazy like to look back and think like yeah I the brain is very different right because our brain doesn't like stop developing until we're 25 yeah um, I've had one year of a uh, development. <laughs> I guess two years now, but like, yeah, it's really funny to think about that. So, like, am I really two years old? <laughs> I mean, your your brain would probably say yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of fun. It's really interesting. But I mean, your your I mean, this is a little neurobiology, but your your brain repairs itself. Like neuroplasticity right. is a real thing, yep. and that's what happens a lot in recovery is mm-hmm. neuroplasticity because what happens is. Um, when we are in the throes of active addiction, our prefrontal cortex is not online Mm-mm. whatsoever. And so when someone enters recovery or treatment, it's pulling back and strengthening that prefrontal cortex right. and being able to make good decisions, mm-hmm. making good judgment calls, you know, especially when they get back out into the real world after treatment. Um, so those things are so important. So do you think that um, teenagers, because we know that neuroplasticity with age, like gets harder. So who has a better chance of recovery? Is it starting young or is it when you're older? Starting young, starting young. Because when you think of that teenage brain, it's still developing. Right. And so the drug use or alcohol use that's being, that's happening in the teenage brain, you know, should repair itself more quickly because you just have more time than someone who is older. Right. And the brain is probably repairing itself at a faster rate in a younger kiddo than it would for someone who's 50 years old. But that doesn't mean that you can't do it. Right. Whatsoever. But it is probably a little bit easier to get it done in earlier 
because, you know, it is recommended that no teenager should drink drugs or drink alcohol or do drugs because of their developing brain. Mm -hmm. This goes for weed, friends. Yes, it does. (laughs) There is such thing as cannabis use disorder, Mm -hmm. like, you know, there's cocaine use disorder, alcohol use disorder, there's the whole gambit, right? So, um, and I think that with all of these markers of addiction, like I really look for, look at the whole person, look at everything, you know, how this person was raised, what their history is like, you know, what are they, what are they struggling with to put all these pieces of a puzzle together. Mm -hmm. And so when I watch the show, that's what I'm doing is putting these pieces of a puzzle together. Right. And family has a lot to do. Oh, for sure. With addiction. Yeah. And so talking about enabling and boundaries love it <laughs> um this was very interesting for me to yeah watch. tell me your thoughts on what like the enabling behaviors that yeah, you saw it's almost like sad because these parents so both episodes that i watched dealt with like the child even if they were older mm-hmm. um and their parents not necessarily their own family um and how the parents just enabled by either giving them a space mm-hmm. to use like they weren't they, they were in a home they gave them a home mm-hmm. and like they would be whether it was drunk or using um meth or she used a lot of different things but mm-hmm. they would do it right in, in their room like mm-hmm. in front of their parents and and the parents wouldn't take it away they would just kind of like try to help but like it enabled and it was so sad to watch that these parents didn't know what else to do and like they didn't wreck like you can recognize that you're an enabler an enabler and they did but they just didn't know what else to do to do like they're like i don't want to throw my son on the streets and like mm-hmm. one of the dad one of the dads was saying like my worst fear is seeing that he dies alone in the streets but if he like died in the house somehow that would make him feel a little bit better that he had a home to be in or something but like such a different kind of mindset and the interventionist was like you realize in both of those scenarios he dies yeah and it was like so like then dad was just like "Uh, yeah like and it it was wild it was very interesting to watch so enabling when we think of addiction for someone to be motivated to change because they do need to be motivated to change. Like yes. you can't, we can't force people into changing. Right. You know, that whole saying, you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Like, so true. You know, that person who is going through active addiction needs to want that for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they don't have the, the motivators or the, even the consequences to be able to change, why would they? Right. You know? If they are that far deep, their brain has changed. Their brain chemistry literally changes, and they are dependent on whatever they are using. Because if they don't use, then they experience withdrawal symptoms. Um, So they need to be motivated to change. And what enabling does is when we think of, okay, this person is essentially at rock bottom. Mm -hmm. But so bottom is right here, and... If enabler comes in, they put a cushion on top of that rock bottom, you know, like a little mattress pad almost. So when that person falls, they have a cushion to land on so they don't feel the weight of the consequences that their addiction has. Yep. You know, common consequences of addiction are going to be social consequences. They've lost a lot of friendships. 
um, or they don't partake in social life, anything. They don't go right. out. Um, financial consequences. Mm-hmm. So if someone, let's say they're spending, like, I don't know if they said, show this on your episodes that you watch, but sometimes they will show how much someone spends per day. And oh, I've seen day. upwards of like $1,000 a day Dang. on substances. Wow. And so if that person does not have a job, you know, that's a financial consequence that they have because yeah. they're trying to like scrape this money somehow. Um, In the one episode I watched, um, she was getting welfare checks and she was using those welfare checks um, to buy her drugs Mm -hmm. and stuff. Because they mentioned it very briefly in that episode. Um, And then the other one, I don't even know how he was getting money for the alcohol um, because he didn't have a job. So that was interesting, too. I wonder if, like, his parents were a part of that as well. I don't know. Probably, yes. He was also doing some kind of job where he was helping people. He was, but while drunk. Yes, while drunk. While, yeah. Yeah. So enabling provides a cushion. So the person going through active addiction never feels the weight of Mm -hmm. the consequences that they have because if they have shelter, you know, they have a home to live in, a bed to sleep in every single night, they have safety. Yep. Um, They have food. You know, I've seen a lot of episodes where the parents, like, consistently just cook for them. You know, buy them food, give them money. Um, and then the person uses it to, to go buy their drugs or go buy their alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why we don't want to enable is so that the person can feel the consequences of their addiction. Yep. You know, the family feels the consequences of it. Right. But the person does not. And then we look at the person and say, why are you not, why are you still using? Right. Like, don't you see the consequences that it has on your life? And they don't. They don't. They don't understand it. Um, and it's not their fault that they don't understand it, but they don't have the capacity right. to. But the family is also the ones that are contributing to this. Mm-hmm. And by enabling, by not setting these boundaries yep. with the person in evacuate addiction, but we look at them and say, why don't you stop using? Well, we have to stop enabling for right. them to stop using. Right. And I think another thing that the intervention interventionalist said in one of the episodes, <laughs> what a weird word, um, was you know, part of that rock bottom thing. And, and he was saying like, well, rock bottom is death. So like, mm-hmm. we don't want to hit rock bottom. A lot of times families wait until, oh, as soon as they hit rock bottom, then they'll, they'll feel it. But if you're enabling and they're, they're not feeling it, will never feel rock it. bottom is death. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it can be. So it's like, it's like people aren't thinking necessarily like that. And it's good to start putting that into perspective, mm-hmm. especially because, you know, boundaries in this case though they may seem harsh for the family. And I watched in those two episodes, families like really upset about the boundaries that they were putting on. Mm-hmm. And the interventionalist is like, you have to stick to these boundaries. And it just crushed the family to say like, you can't live here anymore. We're going to yeah. kick you out. And, but that also so painful, right? It's so painful. And it's part of that is, you know, the family going through the pain too. And the, user going through the pain and it's just at the end of the day though that's kind of what you need to do to help to help them so it seems like it's a backwards move but it really is a forwards move yeah and so if you're familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous AA Mm -hmm. um, they have something called Al-Anon and so Al-Anon is for family members of those suffering from active addiction and so family members can essentially go to these like um, these peer support groups um, And a a phrase that they use is called detachment with love. So detach with love. And so 
what you're saying of like that harsh boundary that we feel it's actually a detachment from this person's addiction it doesn't mean that we love them any less right for whatsoever but it means that i love you too much to be able to enable your addiction so i need to detach myself from your addiction i'm not detaching myself from you because i love you you're my family or you're my child Mm -hmm. but i also need to take care of myself and detach from this addiction and so i really like that term because when we say like set boundaries that feels like walls it feels like rigid and it feels harsh Mm -hmm. and it's gonna feel painful right for a parent to say that to a child Mm -hmm. no matter what age they are right you know it could be a 70 year old parent with a 50 year old child you know it still feels harsh and it will be painful but it's it's how we're looking at it if you're looking at it like you are leaving them to die then yeah that's gonna hurt but if we reframe it and think i'm doing this to save their life You know, something interesting about the episode that I had Taylor watch was at the end, the, the woman chose not to go to treatment. Yeah. And so the interventionist said, if this is the time, the intervention starts now because she says no to uphold your boundaries. And so family did uphold their boundaries even after the show was over. And five days later, she went to treatment. Yep. You know, that's why it's so important to hold those boundaries because once she held boundaries or the family did... She realized, oh, I, I don't have anywhere to live. Right. I, I don't have money. I can't, like, live. So yeah. I need to go to treatment. Like, this yeah. is my only option right now, which that's why boundaries work. Yeah. And the problem with this story in particular is that she did go to treatment. She left after two weeks, which yeah. is common. That does happen. Mm-hmm. And her mom didn't uphold the boundaries and yep. now she's living with she's her living mom again. and in active addiction again. Oh, is she? I didn't know that. Yeah. She's still using. Yep. See, and that's, again, she just went back to the cushion. Yes. So that cushion, although we think it's helpful, like enabling and helping are two different things. Right. Especially in this case. Right. And I feel like it's a little bit different than maybe what you would think helping is in other scenarios. But when it comes to substance use, it's definitely different. Yes, absolutely. Um, because someone needs to be motivated to change. Why would I change if I have safety? All of my basic needs are covered here. Yep. And I'm still able to use my substance. Mm-hmm. Why would I change? Right. And then some people are even in that pre-contemplative stage where they don't even yeah. realize it's an issue. Right. Like they may not have some of those consequences or they may go through some of them but then kind of justify them Mm -hmm. um and because they still have a family they still have a home they still have a job and are able to work it doesn't feel that harsh Mm -hmm. so they don't even realize that it is a problem and i feel like i've come across some of that too yeah with clients and stuff yeah and so we use something called a stages of change model Mm -hmm. and so it, it goes through like how people make changes in their lives. And so when you said the pre-contemplative stage, that essentially means I don't realize that there is a problem. Like I have no clue whatsoever. Um, The second stage is contemplation. And that's where we say, hmm, I think I do have a problem, but I'm not... I'm not willing to take action on it at this moment. I'm not ready. And then the next stage is preparation. And that is where okay, I'm thinking about changing, like, what would I need to do in order to change? And so for someone who, let's say, is just 
maybe not in a dependence of alcohol or drugs, or maybe they're just misusing or abusing it. Right. You know, preparation may look like, okay, I'm going to reach out to an addiction specialist, or mm-hmm. I'm going to try to go to an AA group, or at least figure where one is. Like, right. figure out um, where the nearest, what times they are. Right. And then the next stage is action, actually doing the thing that's going to make that change. And then after that is maintenance. Because I also think, like, and I only watched two episodes of the show, but, like, they are showing the extremes. Yes, like, yes, Like, the yes. very intense, it is, as a watcher, very obvious that this person has a problem. But, like I said, I feel like in day-to-day stuff, it's more likely that someone doesn't realize they have a problem or they're on that precipice where it's like, mm-hmm. well, I don't look like that, so I'm, I don't need help. But it's really, like, there are different levels or a spectrum of it. And right. so, like, you could seek help at each level. Right. Um, I just think people wait until they're at, like, the worst possible spot. The dependence. The dependence spot. And then yeah. it's, like, too, not too late, but it's, like, now we're, it's the hardest part mm-hmm. to go back from. Right. And so that substance use spectrum, the way that I think about it is, is we have substance use. Mm-hmm. We have substance misuse. So okay. misusing the way that we use. Um, abuse, so abusing the substance, and then we have dependence. So what would you say is, like, the different criteria for that? Like, how would you know where you are in, are Mm. you at misuse or abuse or dependence or... Usually it's the, in the beginning, it's why. Like, you know, why... Why are you using? Like, mm. what is your relationship to drugs or alcohol? I'm going to use alcohol because this is usually it's a it's a little bit of an easier one to explain, right? Um, but so you can have normal recreational alcohol use, like using very socially. You know, there's tons of breweries in Charlotte, and yeah. people frequent them a lot, uh-huh. and so we just have regular use. Okay. You know, misuse would be well. I'm really sad or I lost this person or this person just died and I, I, I drank a lot to kind of cope with it. So I misused the substance. Okay. So while I used it before to have fun recreationally, I'm now misusing it to numb my feelings. Mm. So on that note, if I had a glass of wine after a hard day of work consistently, like what mm. is that? Is that misuse or is it at what point does it become abuse? Yeah. Well, we start thinking about where do the consequences come back in? Gotcha. Because okay. you can misuse, like if you're drinking, you know, wine every single night to cope with your stress, like that's temporary. It's fleeting. It's not really coping with your stress. Right. Um, and so you're just probably misusing it. And you need to be redirected into coping strategies that are going to be more beneficial for your mental health. Right. That are actually going to promote a well-being right. and not a temporary fleeting happiness. And this is a hypothetical. I do not do that. <laughs> I rarely. I'm do. glad for the disclaimer. Yeah, for disclaimer. That, one. that was a hypothetical. That was. An, I don't do it. <laughs> so that that could be misusing, meaning that like, okay, our relationship to it is kind of in the wrong place right now. Okay. You know, abuse is where we start seeing a lot of consequences. Okay. Um, um, so I'm abusing alcohol, meaning that, well, I drink from the moment that I get home until the moment that I go to bed. I'm doing it every single night. I'm choosing to not engage in activities because all I would want to do is drink. Um, I could be abusing it because I got a DUI. Yeah. You okay. know, that's a legal consequence. Right. Um, but that still could be considered just abuse and not addic- or uh, what did you say the word was? Dependence. Dependence. Yeah. yeah. You could be abusing alcohol at that point. I mean, you could be dependent as well. Right. You could be anything and get a DUI. Right. You know, make a mistake. It happens. 
Um, but abuse, we do see a lot more of those consequences. Maybe their family starts pointing it out to them gotcha. and saying like, hey, I noticed that every, you know, family barbecue or Sunday dinner, you are really, really inebriated. Right. You know, getting really drunk all the time. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. At inappropriate moments even. And so what happens with like long-term chronic use is that your brain chemistry changes. So it has to do with our dopamine levels in our brain. Mm -hmm. So when we use substances, we get like mass amounts of dopamine flooding through our system. And so right. dopamine is your pleasure reward center of your brain. Um, it's the hormone that's released from that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we feel just intense dopamine. And so at a certain point, your brain is smart and it says, well, I know that you're gonna give me this dopamine at some point. And so why would I make it? And so your brain essentially will shut down some of that dopamine production that mm -hmm. it makes on its own. We get dopamine from completing activities, like completing tasks and stuff. Um, we get dopamine from exercising. We yep. get dopamine from food. Um, yep. We get dopamine in, when we do creative things. Mm -hmm. Like we get dopamine in a lot of different ways, but we never get it in the way of which a substance will give it to us. Right. So it's an unrealistic expectation for your brain. And yes. essentially you'll never feel naturally like that as you do with the substance. And I could, and that's how you become so dependent on it. Right. Because we think of like, dopamine gets released in our brain in little tiny drips. So imagine a water faucet mm -hmm. that's you know, maybe broken and just drips all the time, you know what I'm talking yeah. about? That's kind of what our brain does with dopamine when we complete tasks and we do exercise and stuff like that. Uh, we can get it from our job. and But <laughs> doing substances is like turning on the floods, you know, like the faucet <laughs> at full force. Yeah. Just, whoosh, yeah. You know, that that's what it's like. And right. so when we cross over to dependence, our brain is not like producing the dopamine in the way that we're used to receiving it. For sure. And so it's very, very hard in recovery um, for someone in the beginning stages of it to not deal with that dopamine or not have that dopamine response. Right. And so that's why it takes three months, a lot of time to help your brain recover from it. It's very interesting. It's fascinating. Um, should we do the pros and cons of the show? Absolutely. So with every show, there's pros and cons. I mean, this is reality TV. It's mm -hmm. meant for entertainment purposes. Yep. And so I, I, the show is, you know, advocating, but it's also entertaining. So I think a con of it is, could it be exploitive? Mm of those, I mean, because the people that you see on the show are really, really in the depths. And they're vulnerable. Very vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and one thing about the show, too, is that the people who are participating in it don't know that it's intervention. Yes, that is true. They are led to believe that it is a documentary about addiction, mm -hmm. but they're not specifically told that it's intervention. Right. And one of the questions that I have about it is, you know, was the person sober when they sign the contract. Oh, true, because you don't even get to know about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, when they agree to be filmed and do this whole process, like, were they in the right state of mind to be able to know what they were signing up for? I mean, to be fair, if the family is the one that reaches out to the show, right, mm -hmm. I would assume it's not because their child or their member is sober. It's mm -hmm. probably because they're using and they don't know what else to do. And right. seeing, like, the alcohol 
uh, episode, I mean, that I don't think there was a moment until he went to the intervention when he, he was sober. I yeah. mean, he oh, woke like, up. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like that he woke up, drank, was drunk when he went to bed, still drunk when he woke up. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't see him sober at all. I, well, even he in the couldn't. I mean, he couldn't because of withdrawals. Right. You know? Right. So then at that point, it's like, well, mm-hmm. I feel like he was definitely under the influence at least whether yeah. it was in the morning when maybe he's a little bit more cognizant and i don't know yeah so it's a really good point i didn't even think about that so you know is it exploited mm-hmm. of someone at a very 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 vulnerable part in their life um could that be the case so that's a potential con of it and they don't really know what they're filming for and you're also viewing like a very vulnerable part of someone's life yeah um and The show also, like I said, shows the depths of addiction, and you were saying, you kind of alluded to it before, that addiction takes many forms. Like, it is not just the people that we are seeing on TV. Right. Like, you know, addiction does not know socioeconomic status, it does not know gender, it does not know race, it does not know anything. Right. And so, truly, there are so many different people of all walks of life that do struggle with this disease. And I wonder with the show, too, because the show is paying for that, like, intervention, that social economic status, who's going to be more likely to reach out to the show are those that want that help with paying mm-hmm. for the, uh, per, uh, what is it, wrong? treatment, wow, yeah. the word, um, who are help paying for the treatment. So, like, both of the episodes I watched, like, it, was, it wasn't rich mansions that these people were living in. Like, it was... You could tell that the families needed the show's help in order to help pay and everything. And I don't know what that's like throughout the show because I haven't seen as many episodes. But I feel like that must be a a larger theme for the show in particular. Yeah, it is a larger theme of the show of, you know, this is a last-ditch effort, you know, because we probably wouldn't be able to pay for this on our own. Right. And, but also, too, like, the addiction is financially burdening on a family itself you know I addiction right now and substance use disorders and everything that we need to spend as a government on addiction it's upwards of 35 billion dollars oh my gosh spent on all on, on this wow and this is like court fees this is you know police officers that are dealing with the DWIs this is treatment costs like community mental health centers like you know they spend a lot of money on dealing with addiction but do we spend a lot of money on preventing addiction um so as far as like the cons of the show I think the biggest con is that it could be very exploitive of people mm-hmm. um, I think the pros of the show is advocacy I do think that they try despite it being a reality television show right. they pull in statistics and they, they show don't. from reputable sources which I very much appreciate yep. you know if you're looking for any type of drug or alcohol statistics you know I learned very early on in grad school from one of my favorite people in the world. She was a mentor of mine. And she would always shout out, always look at the big three, which is NIDA, NIAAA, and SAMHSA. Um, so SAMHSA is Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. NIDA is National Institute on Drug Abuse. And NIAAA is National Institute of Alcoholism and Addiction something like that. Yeah. Um, but those big three, NIDA, NIAAA, and SAMHSA are the places that we want to go to look at 
reliable information. information on statistics and all of they have so many facts about drugs and alcohol they have so many fact sheets they have brochures they have so much wonderful information mm-hmm. and so if you know if you know anyone who's struggling those are really good places mm-hmm. to go samsa has a helpline to be able to help people and i'm gonna i'll link all three of those to this episode so it'll be in like the notes section of wherever you're listening or watching it And one thing I do want to say, let me talk about pros and I'll say my last thing. Um, I think the pros of the show is the advocacy piece. You know, we are seeing addiction, you Mm -hmm. know. Over time, we are seeing less stigmatization Mm -hmm. of addiction, but it's still there. Yes. It's 100% still there. Right. Uh, But as we learn more about addiction, we destigmatize it. Yep. And so one of the biggest things to know is that addiction is a chronic brain disease. Chronic brain disease. Yep. But it is treatable through therapeutic intervention. Hmm. So you'd say so like medical so it's it's a medical thing, but you can also treat it through therapy. So yes, essentially. Um and you can also treat it medically too. Like if someone is going through uh, opioid use disorder, like heroin use or prescription medication, Oxycontin, stuff like that. Um, there's something called medicated assisted treatment. Mm-hmm. And so that's where someone takes suboxone, buprenorphine, uh, methadone. And what it does, it's a synthetic opiate, right. which basically does not, you know, get the person high or give them those euphoric feelings that they would get from like heroin, right. but it curbs the, the withdrawal symptoms. And so that is also a medical way of treatment. Uh, And so you can essentially, if you have an opioid use disorder, go into a medication-assisted treatment program Mm -hmm. and get medical treatment from that, but also doing therapeutic intervention at the same time. Right. And so when you say that it's like a chronic disease, Mm -hmm. where does that, when does it fall, become that? Is it the abuse spectrum? Is it the dependence that it becomes? Like, where does that happen? So I see it more in the dependence. Yeah. Like, you know, with the spectrum, it kind of like fluctuates, goes, you know, kind of a little bit back and forth. Yep. And, um, but we see the chronic through dependence. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, with this of knowing that addiction is a chronic brain disease, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's less stigmatizing than what we knew previously. Right. Thinking that it's a choice. It's a, yeah, it's a choice. Right. And like I said, like, yes, we all have a choice in the beginning, but for some of these people on the show, they don't really have a choice. Right, the choice is gone. Well, the choice is I don't use, and then I go into withdrawals, and withdrawals from alcohol or, you know, they're all different for each substance, mm-hmm. but some of the worst withdrawals that you can have are from opioids. Yeah. And so it feels like the flu times a hundred. Yeah. You know, from what has been always reported to me, right. you know, we as addiction specialists, we have um, post-acute withdrawal scales. We have a lot of different measurements to measure like where someone is at in withdrawal, mm-hmm. um, but it's a very painful process. Right. And, you know, a lot of people who go through active addiction are afraid oh, for sure. of withdrawing. Yeah. And so um, when they go off to treatment, sometimes they need a detox period. So they go into detox for about a week to do a medical detox where it's a very safe way to get the, the substances out of the body right. so that they're able to enter treatment. Um, but you know, if you take away anything from today of, you know, addiction, 
knowing that it is a chronic brain disease is one of the most important things. It's treatable. Right. But it is chronic. Right. And recovery is something that people have to engage in every day. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lifelong thing. It's not like a, oh, I do this thing for three months and then I'm cured. Like, it is an everyday battle and it is a lifelong thing, which is really tough. Like, when you think about it that way, it seems so daunting. But people do it. They do it. And I think that they are so courageous. Yes. It takes so much courage. So much courage. So much strength. And, you know, thinking about the backgrounds of some of these people, it's just so much resiliency in it. For sure. You know, I think addiction is a very, it's a hard field to work in. But it's also a very rewarding field to work in when you see people actually work it. And make a change. And make a change. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like overall this show in particular really was eye-opening for me. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of does the shoe fit, I think it does. Like obviously we talked about some cons and maybe it doesn't show everything that there is for addiction. But I mean this was real life stuff. It really tells you how dark it can get. And I felt like that was... Um, it is the reality of the situation, um, and it's eye-opening for sure. So I'm going to say, yes, the shoe does fit with interve- with intervention. All right. What about you? I say the same thing. Okay. Like, I do think that there are the cons for sure, mm-hmm. and I think that there is a lot more to addiction that is not shown. But, right. you know, I think that the premise of the show of trying to get people into treatment, you know, that fits. Yep. That fits for me. The intervention process seems very harsh, you know? Yeah. You know, that ultimatum kind of decision. Mm -hmm. But we need to be intervening way before that. Right. Yes. You know, take anything from that show. You at least then maybe know how you could intervene if you know somebody um, way before it gets to that level. Because it is like this is a last result. So it is the most intense, like, situations on that show. Yeah. Well, yeah. So thank you for coming on this podcast. And I know you could talk about this forever. So maybe Ever. we'll have another, another uh, substance use episode later. Yes, um, definitely. Yeah. So well, thank you. And thanks to everyone listening. 